Any questions you have from your direct experience? Let's start with direct experience and then go to theory after that. What did you notice? Yeah, back there. I noticed a lot of uh, visual activity. Visual activity. So noticing a lot of visual activity, not quite sure how to work with it, whether to indulge it or just let it be there. Um, when doing this particular practice, um, everything that's not the breath is considered secondary and it's not worth struggling against it. But after a while, seeing if you can um, lose interest in it there are other types of meditation that you can do where you're just aware of awareness, for example. And there it's not so matter it doesn't matter so much what you're aware of. And then other times you might actually be exploring mindfulness of what's produced by the mind, the content of the mind, images, thoughts, stories. And so if you were intentionally doing those practices, then you could take interest in mental imagery. But on this particular um, training, uh, everything that's secondary to the breath is not to be struggled with nor uh, enchanted by and see if you can over time uh, just let it be there like you would let warmth be in your foot, images at your mind, and that really what you're deepening and being fascinated by and developing a relationship to is the felt sense of the breath. And yet there are other practices at other times that are useful to look at mental experience, but not in this particular training. Yeah. Uh, sitting with calmness of mind and heart, even as I'm having very disturbing thoughts and images, and just letting that be okay. So you notice that there was some calmness in heart and mind, even those, and you could stay with it even though there was um, a content that might have been a little disturbing or things passing through. And that's often the case is that we rarely have 100% of one thing or another. And due to, um, it's a belief that we are, dis we are the genetic descendants of beings that took more interest in threats than in um, joys. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and you know some of the direct people. Um, but if you're tracking pleasures and you don't track dangers, then you don't hear the snap of the twig of whatever's about to pounce on you. And so um, we're, our attention is often weighted to the problems. And then there's a counter one where you can't, you get so overwhelmed by problems that you start to be a little bit adrift in pleasures. But um, what we have to do is actually learn to go into what's unpleasant, but before we get defined by it, come out. And then there's an appropriate relationship to know that um, I'm having anxiety, <clears throat> but it's not completely defining me. I see it as a something happening here and now telling me a story about the future. 
And so it's often the case that there'll be pain in the body and yet it's not the entire body that's in pain. And so I used to, when I was having a lot of pain in my body, someone said, do you have pain in your nose? Like, no, but I wasn't paying attention to my nose. Do you have pain in your ears? Like, no, I wasn't paying attention to my ears. Do you have pain in your fingertips? No, I wasn't paying attention to them. And I could actually pay, pay attention to the parts of my body that are well and use them as a stabilizing um, experience so that I could pay attention to what was not well but not be swept up by it. So it's a little bit like uh, tying a rope around what's well and then lowering yourself towards what's troubling. And if you get lost there, pulling yourself back out to what's well, regaining perspective, and learning how much of what's not well can I endure before I start to get panicked by it. And which is another skill we have to develop in mindfulness is if you lose your patience, then you're no longer mindful. It's like, well, then I've never been mindful because I've never been patient. It's like, well, probably to some degree, you've never been mindful of a really strong pain because it brings too much fear with it. So how do you actually regroup somewhere? And the, the place we're supposed to regroup should be a combination of pleasant and neutral. So we get the benefit of the neutrality for bringing the calm, the benefit of the pleasantness to bring sort of the restorativeness and the, the relief. And so if you're doing breath awareness, but you have asthma, and you're being loyal to the breath, but you're basically being loyal to this precarious anxiety of the asthma, breath may not be actually the best place, which is why some people do sound if they have a lot going on in their body. And then they stabilize on sound or visual experience. And then from that, they're able to then go towards chronic pain in the body, and they find like, okay, not everything hurts, so I'll first stabilize on sound or sight, come into my go-to places in the body, like my nose, my ears, my fingertips, where there's no pain. And then I can go a little further towards what's painful. But as soon as I lose my patience, as soon as I lose my um, equanimity, and I cannot actually be intimate with what it is because there's too much reactivity, then I come back out to my fingertips, my nose, my ears, I come back out to sounds just to kind of regroup. And we're constantly doing that when we come up against uh, chronic challenges. So breathing with something might end up being a metaphor to coexisting with something because it, the breath might actually be too um, somatically intimate to uh, really strong pain. And it would just engender too much anxiety to come into the body field at all. So you go one step out to what is actually grounding sounds, for example, or sights. And then you come into the body where you can enter it and not immediately kick up too much anxiety. And then see if you can make inroads towards these locations where the pain is strongest. So I'm just sort of jumping off your observation there. Yeah. Kind of on the other side of this coin is that I noticed that uh, stories keep like I don't know if it, I don't can't say I actually noticed the boring, but the neutral I guess is not satisfying. And so stories come up that are more exciting. Yeah. And so I notice the story, you know, and yeah. I, I try to be with it. So I mean that's what was coming up for me. So the challenge of neutrality 
and therefore being susceptible to the pleasure of thought. And <clears throat> that's common. It's actually, there's a discourse called the two arrow discourse, or the arrow, the, the discourse of the two arrows. And one of them is because we're running from pain, neutrality doesn't really offer a lot, but pleasure does. And so we have an underlying tendency to really want to secure our relationship to pleasure because it's the opposite of pain. And so neutral, we, we just sort of bypass neutral because it doesn't give us enough. And life has been hard enough. I, I don't need to take a break in neutral. Like, I actually need like something really positive to counteract how stressed I've been. When approaching the, with some, with some dedication, um, what you begin to appreciate about neutral, if when you build relationships with neutral, is it doesn't come with drama. And the pleasure pain um, duality is just so loaded with instability because it, it has so close to it a dramatic relationship. And so at first we don't like neutral because it's soporific, it dulls us out, and it doesn't really deliver anything all that interesting. So out in the common world, we don't spend a lot of time with neutral, we space out and either look for pain to manage it or look for pleasure to kind of give ourselves a break. So there's actually a training against neutrality. But if you hang out there, there's a, there's a, a band or a block of boredom around neutrality. And if you're loyal there, at some point, the boredom uh, lifts and neutral begins to open up and it's actually people end up preferring neutral to pleasure. But that's a, that's a, a very ripe uh, development. It takes time um, because until then it's boring or it's dulling. But um, when developed, people prefer neutral because it doesn't come with preferences um, that, that jerk you around. To get there, it's good to actually spend time with what's mildly pleasant, give ease to your system, and then from that easeful place, you actually can begin to be awake in the neutral, which is why steps five and six, the PT Sukha, they're not neutral. I mean, you know the body, you calm the body, but then you start knowing PT and Sukha to make sure that calm doesn't drive you into the sleepy side. Then you know the mind, you calm the mind, mental activity, you know, mental activity, calm mental activity. But then you gladden the mind and all, all the way through to develop samadhi, one part of it is knowing and calming and one part of it is cultivating um, positive energies. So you get the energetic lift, but also the calm and you let those blend together so that you feel the optimism, the lift, the energy so you don't go sleepy but some of the calm so that pleasure doesn't become a project and, um, and it's too much stirring activity. Any questions about these, this you know, overall Anapanasati Sutta that we've discussed so far or specifically in these 12 steps? The PT, that's number five, I think. Yeah. Uh huh. So 
Um, <clears throat> PT is not uh, neutral. Sukha heads, is heading towards neutral. It, um, PT, even when it's really good, is energizing. Sukha tends to be um, pleasurable, but heading towards calm. And then you can actually lose um, the sukha and just be floating in a very still calm. But for a lot of people, that begins to they begin to nod out there in the tranquility. So PT is um, is an easier place to kind of get uh, happiness going because it's happy, it's stimulating. But then you have to kind of um, really clear the field and kind of balance yourself out before you can stabilize in sukha without that becoming sleepy. <laughs> and then you actually don't even need the sukha. You can stabilize in the just stillness. And if you're a... If you're a if you're a theory nerd, <laughs> if you look at the four um, traditional absorptions, the first one you have to work your way into. The second absorption is full of PT. That's known as the PT the PT absorption. It's just tingly, buzzy, electric possibility. You're kind of buzzing, but that starts to feel jangly after a while. And what you prefer is actually the third absorption, which is just known as sukha. It's just like ah. Oh, the ease, it's the release, it's the well-being, but it's hard to actually get there and stabilize it. And then the fourth one is all about stillness, neutrality and stillness, but it's hard to actually stabilize that. And it's the development to be able to actually be completely filled with a pristine stillness. It's like being in a, you know, a cave with water in it and you don't hear anything, not even a drip. It's just like, oh, it's all so incredibly perfectly still. And there's an aliveness in the stillness, but nothing is moving, but it's still it's just riveting because it's so perfectly still. That's actually a hard place for many of us to kind of get in there. And so the the steps into that are hold yourself still with effort, feel feel the buzz of the aliveness, Feel the soothing contentment and then see if you can actually stabilize yourself in stillness. And the thing about stillness is it's completely clean of motion and preferences. It's 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 stillness and equanimity. That's the fourth that's the fourth absorption. And it's the cleanest seeing. And people prefer it when they can stabilize it, because even sukha still has a preference towards things being pleasant. And you still are somewhat dependent upon things being pleasant, which is less, um, it's more precarious. Like I'm well as long as things are pleasant versus I'm well because I may, I'm basically well. And when equanimity actually matures, you have wellness that doesn't, you're still well, even if you break your leg. You know, it's pain, but it's just pain. And you're not preferring the pleasure. So, but it takes longer to actually cultivate that. And so they show you a step-by-step process of intend yourself to be present, kind of be enthused by the aliveness, mature yourself so you don't, you can be held by contentment, which is, you know, all the, all the joyful things swim by you and all the stimulating things swim by you, but like, now I'm actually gonna hang out in this contentment it's a little more stable than all the, the party stuff that's going by with the PT. And then to go into stillness below contentment 
is still another maturing. And that's the four um, classic absorptions. And it's a little bit, you can see it in the structure here too, that you do piti and sukha, calm the mind, glad the mind, get it into the samadhi. And that samadhi is um, matures into something that's more uh, stable. Yeah. And you talked about the climate versus you gave examples of the activities like a session. Yeah. I was wondering, um, I mean, the other teacher I've heard talk about this distinction could be Tigan Hamley talks about the store of consciousness. Is that what this is, or is it different? That, that's a little different. And so the um, when Tigan Han talks about the store of consciousness, that's a little bit into um, Mahayana um, psychology. Okay. And in Mahayana psychology, there has to be a a pristine, eternal awareness that's distinct from the dynamic, everyday awareness. And so they have to kind of come up with a scheme for that. And in Theravada, there's, there's, no, there's no scheme for that. Okay. doesn't need to be a scheme for that. And so mental activity is really the, um, the cogs, the gears, the, the, um, the machinations of the mind. And <clears throat> it takes a little while to actually... Um, feel the difference between mental activity, which is called chitta sankharas, and chitta itself. And so, um, it's a whole it's a whole development of mindfulness to get into the realm of mind and mental activity, and to see how they're related. So, I can be in a place of well-being, and then start thinking negative thoughts, and kind of really work it. And then it builds and it actually begins to change my mental climate inside. And then I can put aside, I mean, it happens like I'm in a good mood, somebody comes in and insults me and I start like getting really pissed off and they apologize and I let it go. But then I just feel this kind of lingering, and I don't have any more mental activity, but I feel gross. And they talk about that because it's actually, I mean, neuroscientists say that's actually, it's, there's this chemistry of gross. Uh, inside with no more stirring activity. It's like there's no more story. I see everything clearly, but I still feel gross. Um, and so they are, they are related. The mind will generate mental activity and mental activity will turn around and poison the mind. Or if you practice loving kindness, you start with sort of an ordinary mind and then you work the mental activity of loving kindness who has loved me? Who have I loved? What am I grateful for? And you start working really beautiful mental activity and it starts to grow. The atmosphere, the heart and the mind begin to warm. When you go into an absorption on loving kindness, you end up relaxing mental activity and just glowing in this mind that's not producing any more stories or images or anything, but you still feel this warm glow and then you walk around and anything you perceive and interact with is now happening within this warm glow of global loving kindness because it's not specific to the activity, which is, I really appreciate my parents and that's the activity that generated loving kindness. Then I let go of the specific and there's just a realm of loving kindness and that starts to feel um, globalized and unconditioned because it's not conditioned by an activity, it's just uh, glow. And you know what being in a bad mood is, and it often comes with activity. So that's why these two things are often conflated. 
the realm of the mind and the activity that's happening within it. And it's just staying with mindfulness until you begin to smell, taste, intuit the climate inside, and that's generating the activity. And often if you have like a bad, uh, well, not bad, but um, an afflicted mind, you have to keep putting out all these fires because it keeps looking. It keeps looking for a fight. It keeps looking for bad news, and so you can like want it's like whack a mole. You just keep like putting things out because you're dealing with the mental activity. What you don't realize is that it's actually a, there's a hurt. There's a there's something off in the actual realm of the heart and mind, but it's a little bit ephemeral, even though it's you're submerged in it. It's like knowing the air in the room. It's like it's just too invisible. But if it gets hot, I know it because I feel it on my skin. I see it. It's like, oh, you're all putting on your sweaters. It must be getting cold. Like, I I could know that, but it's easier to see the activity that's causing, that the heart is causing. And so often you know the realm of the heart and mind by the activity it's producing. If you change the activity, you can change the climate. But you can also sometimes change the climate. And that's a whole thing, just like, oh, there's something really kind of, uneasy in my heart and I could try to change my mental activity but I'm just going to breathe a little bit and soothe my actual inner climate I do that and then all the stories begin to relax and so sometimes you can go to the realm of the heart and the mind directly and not have to get there through mental activity but because they entwine sometimes you have to kind of work them on both levels to really get a cleared out heart space if other people have questions on that, it's actually, a, you know, it's not super important, but it comes up a lot. What is chitta and what are chitta sankaras? The word sankara is, um, is kind of a driven habitualness. And then chitta, the heart-mind, produces its own habits. And so we're relaxing uh, mental habits down to, and we're trying to tranquilize mental habits so that the underlying chitta can be worked on, can be um, developed. But we're not trying to get the underlying chitta to go to tranquilize to zero, just the activities it would produce. Because all those activities, even if they're beautiful, they're stirring, and they're not bad. It's not bad to be stirred, but if it's chronic, then it's fatiguing to the heart and the mind to constantly be stirred by its compulsions. <laughs> the, the, the two things we're talking about are activities, mental activities, and the realm of the mind or the heart, chitta. But he was, he was giving it another word a few minutes ago. Like the, the climate? The climate. Yeah. So is, is the climate like just what is inside? Like in a feeling kind of way? And yeah, so the climate. The language of the of chitta is more. It has different languages. So, emotion, just the emotion without the the specific, like anger, versus I'm pissed at my brother. So that pissed at my brother is the activity, but the emotional realm is anger. And so you can actually quiet down the specific story and still find that there's plenty of heat. 
and then it ignites another fire. It's like, well, I, you know, either back to the original story or you're pissed off at something else. And you've been in bad moods and then found many reasons for it, but really it's the underlying mood. But chitta's, the realm of chitta is not just moods because you can have a, um, a, like a, a stable chitta and its own stability is just, yeah, this is stable. And out of that, whatever I apply my mind to, whatever activity, it's actually being held by this underlying stability. So some of the language of chitta is also, um, whether it's restless, distractible, scattered, um, whole, uh, powerful, um, weakened. Um, so there, there are other things beyond the category of emotion that describes what um, the experience of chitta, the experience of heart and mind, and then that heart and mind can so easily produce activities that reflect it. So I could probably tell you had a scattered chitta if you start a sentence and then kind of get distracted halfway through, or we're talking, but someone opens the door and I see your eyes move. And that's very different than later on where I'm telling a story and I have your full attention. So those are qualities of heart and mind. And they change throughout the day. And they change from day to day because it's, you know, it's due to conditions that your heart and your mind are in this shape or that shape. Um, so if you, it's not so important. In daily life, there's, they're so merged that I don't often spend a lot of time trying to like, oh, is this mental activity or is this heart-mind? Because they're often so merged that I kind of end up calming them both down at the same time if they're not being productive or warming them up so they can be productive. Like I really want to, I really want to take on a project, but I can tell I, my mind is just not energized enough. So I'll really try to like, really like, let's do this and really raise the energy of my heart, mind, and my mental activity at the same time. So out in daily life, I wouldn't worry too much about trying to separate them. And it's a little bit more of like a meditator finesse to kind of know the difference between mental activity and the heart, mind that are producing them. And it's only when you're trying to get into some nuances of practice, then um, distinguishing mental activity from actual the heart mind that's producing them, um, that becomes interesting and useful. But out in daily life, they're usually so conflated that uh, it wouldn't be so useful to try to come in on one angle and not the other. You end up kind of addressing both of them because they're, they're fairly merged out in daily life. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of came here today with a lot of that, and it's just so refreshing to have permission to just let that be there, and, right. and it's okay to kind of try to find something. You know, it's, yeah. it's so basic. And then along those lines, just just because it's so practical, um, sometimes we do have to calm our mental activity down before we can either even tolerate breathing with it so that we can then release it. So, you know, the theory says experience it before you try to calm it. But sometimes you have to calm it before you can even experience it. And so that's why, you know, you know, starting a sitting, there's a lot of like invitation to let go of your worries because if you haven't let go of them, it's hard to even become mindful enough so you can actually breathe with the worries that are left over. So we are, you know, we are actually swimming through and I, I see it as a pyramid, and you're kind of like 
building the foundation and then we build a little height and then we kind of go back down widen the foundation and we build it up and then we're all about the foundation and the first things and we actually like oh my god it's got this great peak and then we and the pyramid just keeps getting bigger and bigger i don't find it to be actually a linear process yet it's easier to hold information schematically by reducing it a little bit to something that's a little bit more linear but then don't get caught in that so we're all going up and down these 16 steps but by seeing them and then getting a sense like, oh, I see how they relate. And if I know them, then I can say like, wow, I've never cultivated uh, this aliveness. And so that's why I'm always struggling with sloth and torpor. Wow. And I didn't know I could cultivate happiness. Like I thought the more I suffered, the more I was being honest. But like, no, there's actually, a, there's a whole development of contentment so you can see more clearly so that's why I think this is really useful. And it's within our tradition. So we're not sneaking out of our tradition to kind of feel good and trying to like go back in. It's actually right in this central text to cultivate an appreciation of aliveness and appreciation of contentment so that you then can be more productive when you're trying to actually see difficult things. Yeah, back there. Right. I'm going to repeat it. Yeah, so I'll have to repeat it. So she was noticing that the second sit was affected by the walking meditation and she's not so sure one was better than the other, but um, it rose an interest of actually including some walking meditation in her daily practice. So <clears throat> that's, um, we're all different and some people can't stand the walking meditation practice and for them it's like the hardest part of going on retreat is having to do walking meditation. For some people, they can't stand the sitting meditation practice and they're just basically waiting till they can go walking again. And everybody has a different relationship to it. So if it's skillful, if it's helpful, then do it. If it's not too bad, I would do it because it's actually good, walking is such a good bridge to bring these practices out. And then people do find balance in walking because you can make a little bit more choice about how fast you walk, where you walk. You can meet yourself differently um, you can be some more supportive of yourself while doing walking meditation. Yet when you sit, it, the strength of the sitting is that you just you're not moving, and so you really are going to be intimate with whatever is happening without um, choosing too much. So they're both uh, great, and I'm glad that you found some uh, some benefit of doing the walking. What I want to do is actually uh, um, keep us on track. Um, so for that, I'll take one more question, just because you're a patient, yeah. and then we'll take a break for lunch. Um, on, I guess it's number seven, the pay attention, and just the emphasis you put at the beginning on experience something before moving on too quickly. Yeah. That feels very um, challenging with mental activities, yeah. because it feels like a very delicate balance between feeding something 
or just getting lost in it versus just paying attention, experiencing it. And so I think that I'm struggling a little bit with that balance and how to not just be off galloping away on the thought pattern or feeding some negative or, or positive. Yeah. So her question was about um, number seven and number eight here on the list. And <clears throat> experiencing mental activity, um, some of the difficulty of that is that if you actually tolerate it, you can be so easily swept up in it. And so maybe one thing is to kind of just go right away to kind of like quieting it um, rather than being sucked up into mental activity. And <clears throat> I would say that I've, since both of those are true, like um, I'd rather keep what works than try to theoretically do this. So there are times when I do have to just like quiet my mental activity because it is too seductive, it is too overpowering, and I can't actually breathe with it. So then I am more in the, the quieting of it. It's just too much. But what you'll notice is that you can only quiet something so long. You haven't actually uprooted it. You've just forced it into dormancy. To really flush something out of your system, you do have to eventually be mindful of it. But to do that, you have to have capacity to be mindful of it. So until I can actually build the strength of my mindfulness, sometimes I do need to kind of just be disciplined and quiet something down because it is it just takes me over. But I will forever be quieting something down if I can't actually be mindful. And the true uprooting of it is when you can actually coexist with something challenging and you finally have built capacity to breathe with something and then it actually falls apart on its own and you don't even need to tranquilize something it begins to um, disintegrate upon awareness that is a very tall order for many things but it's what the final freedom looks like the final freedom doesn't look like I finally am the toughest guy in the room with my mind, so I got everything kind of in their cages. That, as soon as you catch a cold and you're mentally weak, all the doubts come out of their cages. Or you get everything just so, but something happens and you get weak in your mind and things come out of their cages. And so the actual liberation happens when you can one by one finally breathe in the middle of your fear, breathe in the middle of your anger, and see how it works and see what it's rooted in. And it's, it's sort of like if you watch The Matrix, <laughs> as a modern example, the, the main character is fighting this main evil being, but there comes a point where it doesn't need to fight it, it just needs to understand it. And by seeing through it, it loses all its power. You can't do that on day one with some of your strongest um, mental habits because they're stronger than your mindfulness. But eventually you do have to kind of breathe with them. But if you go to breathe with them and they suck you away, or you go to breathe with them and instantly you're having your hand-to-hand combat on your own mind because it would suck you away or define your world, then that's not the day to be liberated from it. It's the day to kind of learn, get in there a little bit, understand it a little better, and then ask it to kind of get back in its cage. And there's a whole development to where you will finally one by one, be able to breathe in the middle of all your mental patterns. Because that's where all our trouble is, is in these, um, these mental conditions. And we want to develop mindfulness to the point not where we win every battle, 
but where you don't have to fight any battle because you actually see things so clearly that they, they're they just impermanent, empty phenomena and they have no teeth. That's what final liberation feels like. On any, That's when we finally win. There's no fight. Um, but to get to there, there's plenty of fight needed to subdue them so they don't just keep re- reproducing themselves and dragging you behind the truck of their uh, their strength. So sometimes you do need to kind of calm it more directly. But over time, you do. You, I invite you to breathe 10 times in a known fear or breathe 10 times in a known resentment before you go to not let it rule you because that actually, that will build to final freedom, being in there and breathing versus hoping one day that you can just keep kicking its butt so it won't plague you again because you will catch a cold, you will get tired and then you won't be able to win that battle that day. Yeah. Let's take a silent lunch break. Um, We'll meet back here at one, um, but it'll be a relaxed one. (laughs) So you'll probably hear the bell at one and let's begin regrouping at one o'clock. <laughs>